How's everybody doing this morning? Man, it's an exciting day. Some of our leaders were talking and feel like kids the night before Christmas. Like we're so excited. I think we're ten times more excited than you guys. Um, in many ways, it feels like we're having a baby. In other ways, it feels like we're getting married. And as long as we get married before we have the baby, then I guess it's, we're, we're in good standing. But man, it is just unbelievable to me to think about what God's done in six months. Six months. It is unbelievable to me to think about what we're doing today and how we're going to spend our time together and what, what God has in store over the next couple months. So, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at several passages today. And even though I didn't want to do this, the only way I really can do this is to do a part one and a part two. So, we're going to get the meat and the bulk of it this morning. And so, what an exciting day. We're going to look this morning at some things that I know in many ways will be preaching to the choir, but it's some very important meaty stuff that we need to understand. So, we're going to take a topical approach to Scripture. In other words, if you have the handout, you'll notice at the top I listed about five or six passages, and then I put too many verses to possibly list out. If you want those verses, I have them in my notes. But there's about 200 of them, literally. So there's no way we can turn to that. Because if I turn to more than three verses, you guys are going nuts. I can't find them. I can't keep up with them. So I'm just telling you, we're going to do a survey of a smorgasbord of Scripture this morning. And then in service, the vision of RBC. I'm excited about that. And then after, after lunch, uh, a couple of extremely important things. So... Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 in just a few moments, so we're going to turn to a couple passages. Before we get there, I want to recall an incident from 1994 which witnessed the celebration of the 350th anniversary of the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. One of the most uh, famed confessions of faith that's ever been written. Matter of fact, our confession... Uh, comes from that confession, which comes from the Puritan and the Reformation age. And so in 1994, they celebrated the anniversary of this extremely important document. And at the close of the celebration, Scottish minister Eric Alexander began to ask a series of very provocative questions. What is the really important thing that's happening in the world in our generation? He asked, what are the really significant events in the world today. What is the most important thing? He asked, where do we need to look in the modern world to see the most significant event from God's perspective? Where is the focus of all of God's activity in history? And he answered by saying this, the most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply a stage God erects for that purpose. He's calling out a people. He's perfecting them. He's changing them. And history's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain of this bankrupt world and the Lord Jesus Christ arrives in His infinite glory. And the rest of history is simply the scaffolding of that real work. 
And in the midst of this speech, Philip Ryken tells the story of a very powerful incident as they're celebrating this 350th anniversary and they're meeting at Westminster Abbey. And as they're meeting there, he remarked that the last time that he had been to the Abbey, the stone was black and the whole front of the building is covered in this scaffolding. And something behind that scaffolding was taking place. You couldn't see it, but people were busy cleaning the building. The stone was black and the whole front of the building was covered as they've tried to bring out the true beauty of that historic building. And when the scaffolding was finally taken down, the abbey was revealed in pristine, gleaming, white glory for everyone to see. And Alexander said, God is doing the same thing with the church. Quote, There will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. Do you know what He will be pointing to when He says to the whole creation, this is my masterpiece. God will be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because it's there that we see the beauty of Christ in and through the church. It's hard to believe I'm even saying this. Reformation Baptist Church inaugural membership class, August 27, 2017. We're going to look at an overview of basic ecclesiology and simply what that means is the study of the church. The study of the church. And this is very important because there's some reasons why we're here where we are today. Because there's some things uh, that have not uh, been biblically based and things that have not been done that we need to correct and make sure are done correctly. So we're going to look at healthy church life and the doctrine of the church as central in God's redemptive plan. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. People ask, what is your five-year plan? What is your ten-year plan? What's your... 50-year plan. Well, Adam's going to share that with us, but suffice to say, our five-year plan is the same thing as our 105-year plan. The plan is Ephesians 4, 11-16. And the plan is not going to change as long as the Bible doesn't change. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature or the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the plan. It's amazing to me that amidst false doctrine that's so rampantly spread out bookstores and accepted today, 
that in the midst of confessional minimalism, which means have the smallest confession of faith that you can so the most people can agree to basically nothing because there's nothing there. In the midst of this church growth mindset that's entertainment driven, that's attractional driven, I believe that today we've had a resurgence of doctrine, of Reformed theology in the church. But I believe that there's still a reformation that needs to take place because the church today, by and large in America, is dangerously anemic. Anemic. And I believe that we live in a day where we need to once again have another reformation where we can cry, after darkness, light. And that reformation today has to happen through the development and growth of healthy local churches, beginning with this one, that picture and proclaim the gospel of Christ for what it is. Mark Dever classically stated, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. John 13, 34. The church is the gospel made visible. I want to explain something to you, and then I'll unpack what we mean. Our theology informs our ecclesiology. And our ecclesiology reflects our theology. Hang with me. I got a flyer in the mail yesterday. An invite. Hang with me. What we believe about God informs the way we do church life. And the way we do church life paddletails on what we actually believe about God. Amen. Because here there's not more for you. Here there's everything for the glory of God. That's why we exist. Think about it. A church that views God as transcendent, as big and sovereign, but not as eminent and personal, will likely display their theology through worship and fellowship that's serious about, holyship, uh, about holiness, but not impersonal in their relationships. A church that views God as eminently personal, but not as transcendent and holy and sovereign and supremely glorious, will often show their theology in a church life that bears little distinction from the world and a, a whole lot of resemblance to nothing more than a superficial therapeutic community group. Think about it. A church that emphasizes only repentance will be tempted to view God as, uh, to display a God that's joyless, and the gospel is performance-driven. A church that emphasizes free forgiveness, but no confession and repentance, will likely view God as less than holy and just. A church that does not hold firmly to the sovereignty of God in salvation, will be tempted to rest all of the salvation of sinners on itself, and use whatever worldly means it takes to coax a decision from sinners. On the other hand, a church that upholds the sovereignty of God, but forgets that God uses means to save sinners, will oftentimes become cold and inward and nothing more than just some group without a redemptive focus. 
Think, think about it in this, in this dynamic. A church that's only known for its intellect, the mind. A church that's all head will oftentimes forget the affections of God, passion for the glory of God. What's more common today, a church that emphasizes emotion, but no intellect is going anywhere and somewhere, and they have no clue where they're actually going, and they forget the profound mind and intellect of God. Do you see, church, the importance and the bedrock of what we believe about God as the foundation from which we build? And do you see the reason why some churches view church growth the way they do is it's because it reveals what they actually believe about God. And so that's the starting place and that's the foundation. The church is the direct implication of the gospel. And so I want you to note this. Believing in Christ must come before belonging to a church. If there's to be any sense of what one is to belong to. So in other words, we don't just bring people in and let them pretend like they belong so that maybe they'll actually believe. No, there's some things that you have to believe. So what do we have to believe to belong to the church? I'm glad you asked. And we're going to keep reminding you every single Sunday. You have to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Note this. It is that God is the Creator who is sovereign, holy, and just over all things. And man is guilty of cosmic treason and sinning against God's law. And he deserves death and hell. And the Gospel is the good news of the life of Jesus Christ. That He lived a perfectly righteous life in your place and mine, if you believe. And He fulfilled the perfect requirements of the law as the only true God-man. And He died on the cross and He absorbed and satisfied the full wrath of God that your sins and mine deserve. And He fulfilled His holy hatred towards sin and sinners. And Christ absorbed it all. And on the third day, He rose again from the grave. And He demonstrated that He is who He said He is. And He came to do, and He did what He came to do. And He's the true God-man. And God accepted on our behalf what Christ did for us. And as a result, God calls all men to repent to turn from sin, to believe the Gospel, which means to put all of your trust. It means to treasure Christ above all worldly relationships and possessions. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the foundation of Reformation Baptist Church. And this is what you have to believe. And this is where you have to be. And so as we've said before, and we'll repeat many things this morning, the Gospel therefore is the diamond. The gospel is central. So as a church, we're to be the prongs that hold the diamond in place, that protect that diamond, that preserve that diamond, and that put it forth to all nations and to all generations. I love how Bobby Jameson put it. He said, Once upon a time, evangelicals wrestled long and hard over the biblical grounds of church polity, which means government, and practice. And I think that this is an honest evaluation. 
He said, I think our increasing willingness to do so once again is a sign of help. By God's grace, the sinner is increasingly secure, but the sinner is not all there is. And if we make the sinner everything and everything is nothing, we set ourselves up to lose the sinner itself, namely the gospel. We must shore up some border territories in an effort ultimately to make the capital city a little more secure. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at seven central questions. And by God's grace, and by your incredible listening abilities, we're going to get through three of them. So you better listen well. Listen well. He talks too fast. He's got too much going on. I'm fixing to talk fast. Because there's some things that we need to get, and I'm excited about it, and I feel like you've already got some of it. So what are seven central questions about the church, particularly as it relates to, to Reformation Baptist Church? Here's the first question. If you have an outline, we sent that out last night. Is the church necessary or even sufficient for worshiping God, nurturing faith, and making disciples? Do we need the church today as we have it? I want you to consider seven different people. And we've, we've tapped into this a little bit before. We're going to expand it. I want you to consider seven different people and the varying flavors of their attitudes toward the church. I want to introduce to you the first person. Mike Bipes. Mike, will you please stand up? You should have seen your eyebrows when I called your name. Mike, will you please stand and remain standing? Mike is, a, is very spiritual and Mike is a follower of Jesus. But Mike's not into organized religion because Mike believes that he can experience God more powerfully in the woods on Sunday morning or in a boat fishing. Mike, we're glad you're at church today. I want to introduce you to someone else. Jesse, will you please stand? We're glad you're here today, Jesse. Jesse used to attend worship gatherings, but now Jesse likes to attend church online. And here's why. Because online, she has all of her favorite podcast preachers. And they're all at least a hundred times better than I am. Not Adam, but me. <laughs> and she can view it at her own convenience. And, and Jesse has all of her favorite worship bands. And Jesse still gives to all of her favorite ministries. Uh, Ligonier and John MacArthur, they all still get their share. Y'all stay standing. There's another person I want to introduce you to. It's amazing how everyone's looking down. <laughs> Wayne Tucker. We're glad you're here today. You see, Wayne loves the preaching of the meat of the Word. And if you notice, Wayne's always typically here after the music because he comes in and he wants to hear Adam's fire and the meat. But Wayne's busy. And so he leaves right after the worship service because really people don't do anything but hinder his spiritual growth. They don't help it and at best they slow it down. We're glad you're here today, Wayne. I want to introduce you to someone else. Dana, will you help us out? Dana, we're glad you're here. Dana serves very diligently in church. Everything you see, Dana's involved in some way. She never turns down an opportunity to be involved. But Dana's not really crazy about committing to membership. Because Dana thinks as long as I'm always here, what is it anyway? It's just a piece of paper. 
And I'm serving and involved anyway. Why do I need to commit to membership? We're definitely glad you're here. I want to introduce you to someone else. Maria. We're glad you're here. You see, Maria is usually in church somewhere every Sunday. But Maria's never in the same church two Sundays in a row. And, and Maria is single. Don't tell her husband. And Maria loves her singles group. And she is committed to that. You're not listening right, Luke. And Maria loves those relationships, but she likes the preaching and the music at a different church better. So she's committed to that singles group and she goes and never misses, but she's going to try around the different flavors to see which preacher she connects to better. But Maria is involved in that. And, and then we have someone else. Lindsay. We're glad you're here today. Lindsay thinks that church opportunities should be open to everybody. Uh, Lindsay thinks that you really shouldn't make a distinction between a member and a non-member. And Lindsay won't say it, but she gets so frustrated when Adam and Brandon and Scott and the leaders talk about, you have to be a member to do this. And if you're not a member, you can't do that. And Lindsay's like, I don't get it. Why can't everybody just be involved? God loves everybody, right? We're especially glad you're here today, Lindsay. And then finally, Matthew's here. Matthew loves the college ministry at the university. And Matthew's involved with reaching lost people, and he doesn't miss. Matter of fact, Matthew is so committed to that ministry to see the gospel flourish. But Matthew doesn't really go to church. That ministry kind of is his church. Even though they've not covenanted together, because you see what Matthew's realized is that all of you are old and out of touch. And his college ministry can do a better job at reaching college students than you old out of touch people can. And so he loves, and he's going to stay committed to that college ministry, and he's going to come to church when Adam mentions a sermon series that he's really interested in. All of you may, be, may sit down. What do all of these people have in common? How many of you, be honest, have fought like one of those seven individuals at some point in your life? Please raise your hand. Every single one of them, what do they have in common? Them first, about self, what else? Individualism, what? No membership. They all consider themselves Christians, but they share a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. And, and like Brian puts it, I love this, in 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah reached out his hand because he went to grab the ark of God, which symbolized God's dwelling in His holy place. And God struck Ezra, uh, Uzzah down immediately. Because Uzzah assumed that his hands were cleaner than the dirt of the earth. Because God had prescribed a right way for God's people to worship and that was not it. And today is our Uzzah moment. Have you noticed where it's once to say, I'm in church regularly. It meant that you're at church at least two to three times a week. 
Have you noticed today to say I'm in church regularly? What people think is that they're in church each week. What's actually happening for most is they're in church once or twice a month. Because if you count travel baseball on this Sunday and the kids were sick on this Sunday and we made it on this Sunday but we were too tired on that Sunday, really they're only showing up once or twice a month. This is not the culture that we want. This is not the culture that we have nor that we want. So just three very quick plagues of the modern church. Number one, individualism. I'll tell you by and large, generally speaking, why people will not commit to church membership. And the answer is authority. The answer is authority. They do not want to submit to the authority of anyone, especially God's divine organization. They had to be saved first. But have you noticed this anti-institutional mindset? Uh, this, we don't want organized religion, we can do it better on our own. Here's another one. Pragmatism. In other words, if it works, then we should do it. If it works and gets people in, then surely God's blessing it. Did you know that drawing a crowds is oftentimes, possibly, more of a symbol of Satan's blessing than God's? And so if it works, if it, let's just do it. No. No. We want to grow as a church, but we don't want to grow that way because that's not growth. And then obviously consumerism. And so we, we're used to memberships. Uh, go to Costco. Get a membership. If you like the product, keep it. If you don't like it, then go back for a better deal somewhere else uh, for a lower price. It's just a mere transaction for your personal happiness. This is the worldview that we inhale. Marketing. Consumers that want to be pleased and appeased. This is no surprise. The fall. Adam. Sinful autonomy against God. Oftentimes the church today is more of a reflection of Americanism and American democracy than Scripture. From the beginning of America, our founding, freedom has been our song. But I'm afraid that oftentimes the lyrics scream slavery. Because we scream our independence. And then we see the second great awakening, uh, revivalism. Where individual experience is king. And throughout this period of revivalism, we see this quick, charismatic, miraculous influence that goes on outside the church. And it begins to replace the slow and steady and ordinary and faithful growth that happens within the church. And so you see a very new reversal of what it means to be a healthy church. Things are taken outside the church. So what begins to happen is you have these ministries outside the church. And then they're all competing with one another for the attention of local churches, for funding and for service. So what happens uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the church decides to bring all of these ministries within the church. So you have a youth department. You have a men's ministry and a women's ministry and a children's ministry and an evangelism ministry and a discipleship ministry. A ministry for the poor and a ministry for the hungry. But what happens is those different ministries function as isolated islands under the banner of the same church name. They're not com communicating with one another. They're not building up the body of Christ as a whole. They're just separate department heads that look more like the world than the church of Jesus Christ. 
And so this is where we want to be very careful. I love how Moeller said it. He said the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members with minimal moral accountability to God, much less to each other. Christianity is a corporate matter. And I would submit to us this morning that the Christian life cannot be fully realized without relationships with other Christians. Number two. Number two, what is the church? What is the church? How would you define the church? If I asked you in a conversation, what is the church, what would you say? This is, and that come together is huge. Because this question has really been forced to the forefront. Because we live in, a, in an age of multi-services. But the multi-services led to multi-sites. So let me ask you a question. Is a church that meets in three different cities under the same leadership, is that a church? What about a, a church that meets in five different countries with the same pastor? Is that a church? Do you see how this question has been forced to the forefront today? And the way church growth defines the church today is a single people who are unified under a single leadership, vision, and budget. As long as you all pool the same money, you all have the same leaders, and you're all going in the same direction that you're a church. And I would challenge that based on the authority of the Word of God. I'm just being honest. I would challenge all of that. I'm not saying that they're not churches. I'm not saying that we should never go to those churches. But I would say that it's ironic to me that the very definition of a church in the Bible is an assembly. And it's ironic to me that we would have so many assemblies that never assemble. Assemblies that never assemble. That's right. One agreement. <laughs> Common misunderstandings of the church. Here's the first one. The church is a building. Class, open your fingers up. Here's the church. I want to see the steeples. Hold your hands up. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up, Brother Harry. What? What are we teaching our children? The church is a meeting. We were, we were, we were in church today. Church was good today. Has anyone ever said that? The church is a denomination, the United Methodist Church. What about the, the church as a social humanitarian group? Or the church as a crutch for the weak? Or the, the church as a gathering for the more radical? Uh, we're kind of on the fringes. I don't know about this church membership. That's for all the crazy people in the church like John Matulia who are more radical. That's not for us. Common misunderstanding. I want to show you the church. Will you please open your Bibles to Genesis? To the book of Genesis. In creation, God creates not one person, but two. And those two re reproduce. In the flood, follow with me. You're looking for a verse, but I just want you to visualize the storyline of the Bible. Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. God saves not one person, but a few families. Turn to Genesis 12. 
Genesis 12. God calls Abram, and what does he do? He promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that through a people, God will bless all peoples and demonstrate His glory. The book of Exodus. God deals not only with Moses, but with the nation of Israel. And with twelve tribes, hundreds of thousands of people. Not with an individual, but with the whole nation. And He gives them laws and ceremonies to be worked out, not as individuals, but as a people. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God works through Israel. And we get to Matthew, and we see that Christ is the fulfillment of all that Israel points to. And the church is the, bo- the, the blossoming of the flower of everything we've read since Genesis. This is everything that's been pointed to. The church of the living God to display His presence and glory. In the New Testament, the word for church is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. It's used 114 times in the New Testament. Over 90 times. Almost every time the word for church is used. It's used of exactly what's going on right now. Small, local groups of Christians who have covenanted their lives together with one another. Almost every time the word's used. And a handful of times it refers to the universal church of all believers of all time. And so what we see in Matthew 16, and we're going to unpack this in the coming weeks, is that Jesus establishes His church. And He builds it on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets in Ephesians 2. And the rest of the New Testament revolves around the ministry of the local church. And then we get to the early church through the medieval period. Persecution is fierce and rips through the church. But in the 4th century, Emperor Constantine declares basically Christianity as the empire's religion. And so we see this cultural Christianity where believers uh, and unbelievers become part of the church. Because as long as you live in the empire, by virtue of your citizenship, not by virtue of regeneration and salvation, everyone's a member of the church. It'll get you the promotion at work. There's social capital in being a Christian. And that led to the darkening of the gospel through the medieval period. And something happened in the 16th century I bet you've never heard of and I can't wait to tell you. It's called the Protestant Reformation. Which was foreshadowed by John Huss and John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. And they established the church on grace through faith alone. And the Scripture and the Gospel became central. So like Brian Dawson and John Martin Luther was the bull in the china shop. And then like some of you others, Calvin came along and put the nuts and bolts together and and begins to once again put the church on the rock that Scripture put it on. And then we see the separatists come along. The separatists say, we can't stay in this. So they leave the Roman Catholic Church. The Puritans say, we're going to try from within. We're going to change things from within. Does that sound familiar? We're going to reform this thing and turn it around. And they kicked them out because they said, we don't want anything else to do with that. (laughs) And then the Baptists came along and they began to further work out 
the history and the, the theology of Luther and Calvin and the others. And they said, if you keep working that theology out, it's going to lead you to a believer's church where only Christians join the church, not everybody who belongs to the city. And so that's the hills that we come on. I want to show you a few things about the nature of the church. A few distinctions. The Reformers said that the church is a creature of the Word. A creature of the Word. I want you to note these distinctions. First of all, there's the visible church. The visible church is the church as God sees it. True believers. The invisible church, on the other hand, is the church as we see it. And so, are there going to be unbelievers in the church? Yes, but we don't plan it that way. We do everything we can to guard it. And by the way, the only reason we even know of that distinction is because some brothers from other denominations begin to invite children into the membership of the church and they had to distinguish who was and wasn't saved. So it's an artificial distinction altogether. Then there's the universal church and the local church. So the universal church is all believers of all time. The local church is like Reformation, which is what the New Testament mostly speaks of. Then there's the formal organization of the church versus the familial organism of a church. I want to explain this one. We've talked about this. You have to have a church as a formal organization. And I get it. I get it. There's something in us as Americans and as sinners that screams against formal organization and accountability. But the reason we have constitutions and bylaws and formal organizations is the reasons we have bodies and bones. Because without it, the vital organs are left unprotected. And they can't function the way they're intended. So is the focus of Reformation Church the organizational standpoint? The constitution, the technical stuff? No, of course not. We need that stuff in place as an organization so that we can function in family relationships as an organism the way God intended us to. Does that make sense? And so in one sense, the organism, uh, the organization is like the fishbowl. The organism are the fish within the bowl that are allowed to swim freely as God designed. There's the church militant. That's the church on earth that's fighting for the faith. But then there's the church triumphant, which is the heavenly assembly of all those who will make up the church in glory. And what that tells us, if you want to know what the church on earth should look like, begin to look at the church in heaven. Because the church in heaven is made up of every ethnic group and race, every generation, young and old, and every people group. And if that's what it's going to look like, on the other side, then I suggest that we start mirroring it something after that today. What are some biblical metaphors of the church? How is the church described? Uh, some have found over 90 images of the church. Let me give you just some key ones. The church is a people and family of God. So we're a family. The church is the body and bride of Christ. That relates to interconnectedness and intimacy. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3. 
And the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. The way the church was described in the first few centuries after the New Testament is with four attributes. One, holy, Catholic, apostolic. What that means is the church is one, a unified whole. The church is holy. In other words, the church is to reflect the holiness of God. The church is Catholic, which does not mean Roman Catholic. It means universal, all believers. And then the church is apostolic, which we would understand to mean it's built on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, on Scripture. Now that's attributes historically of a universal church. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to get to marks of a true church. And that's important because there's been this sentiment for years surrounding us, uh, surrounding us, and I don't know, maybe some of it is legitimate. But there's this sentiment. You guys act like you're the only true church. You guys act like there are no other true churches if you're not at this church. That's not what we believe. But I'm going to show you what are the marks of a true church so that we can know it when we see it. And the reason is, not all of you will be in this church for the, to the day you die. Some of you are going to be joining other churches at some point in your life. And you need to understand what to look for when you do. Matthew 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is very important because we're going to have member meetings starting in October. And this is the biblical warrant for it. So please pay attention. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the church is the only divinely sanctioned organization. And so oftentimes it's asked, and we've heard, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are telling people who can and can't join the church? I would tell you that based on the authority of the Word of God, we're exercising the kingdom keys that He told us to exercise. Based on the authority of the Word of God, we have the authority to do that. Amen? Who do we think we are? We think we're doing exactly what our Savior told us to do. And this is good. So Jesus is establishing the church with a divine authority through three central identity markers. Number one, a right confession of faith. The what of the gospel. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when you see in Scripture, over and over you see confessions of faith. Here's what we believe. And the central confession of faith, the bedrock, is that Jesus is Lord. How many of you would agree to that? But building from that, the church adds and builds. Because error comes against the church. And so we have to respond to different situations and circumstances. 
So now we have a confession of faith that Scott's going to spend this afternoon going through because we don't want you to come for four or five years before you realize that we believe that God is sovereign. We, we want to confess and put on the table everything that we believe and summarize it and build the church on that confession that Jesus is the Christ and building from there everything that we need to add that Scripture teaches. But then I want you to notice what's next. Not only a right confession, but a credible confessor. What does Jesus say to Peter? Blessed are you. So Jesus affirms that profession of faith. So you have a confession and you have a confessor. And He builds the church on that confession. And then you have a covenant of those confessors around the confession in that faith. Jesus said, speak back to me. I will give you the keys of what? Of the kingdom of God. So you have a confession that's been made about what we believe the Bible teaches. You have people that confess that. And then those people live in covenant together and God gives them the keys of the kingdom. So as a refresher, what are the keys of the kingdom? What do keys do? Someone tell me. They open and they close. They lock and they unlock. So what is Jesus telling us to do which develops more as the New Testament goes on? He's saying that you're going to lock and unlock the kingdom. What He's saying is God's already locked and unlocked the kingdom. But you're going to reflect on earth what He's already done in heaven. So you're going to affirm the people in your member meetings who you believe profess Christ and give evidence of being a Christian. And so when we have a member meeting and, and we say, uh, we want to rec- the elders want to recommend that you accept Billy as a member. And, and if Matthew raises his hand and says, wait a minute, Billy was out of the bar drinking all night and still messing around this morning, I don't think that I can affirm his profession. Then what do we do? Let him on in. Maybe he'll get saved. No! No! And so we're affirming and we're covenanting together, not just saying there's one more for the books. What it means is that we're responsible for one another. And what it means is that we will give an account for your souls before God. And so we had a recent meeting where we've had to discuss several things. And we all just thought, if we have to stay here all night, we will, because we will give an account before God of this situation. We'll stay here all week if it takes it. And so we affirm that. Covenants are made in Scripture. We first see covenants like what we have as a church in the 16th century among English separatists and Baptists. And we have a church covenant. And we're going to go through that. And we see it in the way that we use it uh, more so in the 18th and 19th century. So we're in a long history of thick tradition from Scripture. So before we end, I want to ask you a question. I want you to consider a scenario. I want us to put together the things that we've learned. Consider this. Christians come together for an evening. They have genuine fellowship. They're encouraged together in their faith. And they leave and they think, man, we just had church. Has anyone ever felt that way before? At what point does that group of Christians actually become a church? Or do we just have church wherever there are other Christians? Is any group of Christians anywhere a church? 
When does a fellowship group or a Bible study actually become a church? When do we as Reformation Baptist Church really become a church? Has anyone thought about that? When did we actually become a church? When we just said we're a church? Well, anyone can do that. I love how Bobby Jameson again puts it. A church becomes a church through the mutual pledges of its members. The line between not yet a church and now a church is crossed by the covenant that Christians make with one another. This solemn commitment is what invests a group of believers with the keys of a, the kingdom. Before this covenant, they have no authority over one another and do not formally represent Christ's kingdom to the world. When they covenant, they assume responsibility for one another's lives and doctrine and they create a new embassy of Christ's kingdom on earth. So when we covenant together, and the way that we're going to express that in a culturally relevant way is by signing a piece of paper. You say, I'll sign that piece of paper when you show me in the Bible where they sign pieces of paper. Give me a few minutes. Give me a few minutes. I want to show you some marks of a true church. And I want you to jot these down even if they're familiar with you. Salvation is always tied to church membership and the church is always by definition believers. I want you to see one verse. 1 Corinthians 14. Please turn your Bibles. The church is by definition a gathering of Christians. So what we're doing is for the sheep. So we say this a lot. And what people still tend to not really understand is this question. What about unbelievers? Are you saying unbelievers shouldn't come? Of course we're not saying that. Please come. Please invite all unbelievers. But the idea is that the believers are getting together and this is what should happen in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. An unbeliever or an outsider enters. He's convicted by all. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Has this ever happened to you as a non-believer? And falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Have you ever been sitting in church when you were not a believer and said, that preacher is reading my mail. And you were laid bare and you thought everybody in the room saw your deepest, darkest sins. And you couldn't cry out anything else, but the Lord Jesus Christ has to be in this place. That's not what's going on oftentimes today. I think a lot of times today what's going on is that people go to the church and they don't see anything that they haven't already seen in the world. There's no distinction. So what are some marks of a true church? The Belgic Confession from the Reformation period put it this way. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. Number one, preach the gospel. Not just open the Bible, but preach what the gospel really is and preach what the text really means. It means that the text, the scripture, drives the direction of the church. Not my soapbox, not Adam's favorite collection of topics. This text and this book drives the church. The only authority that I have as a minister and as a Christian is the authority of God's Word to bind your conscience. God forbid that we bind your conscience in any way that Scripture does not bind your conscience. And then it goes on and says, it makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments. Baptism and Lord's Supper. 
And it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure Word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. And so baptism binds the many into one. Or, I'm sorry, baptism binds the one to the many. So we baptize someone, we unite them to the church through baptism. The Lord's Supper binds the many into one. So in the most technical scriptural sense, when we become an actual, formal, constituted church, when a marriage happens... Vows are taking place. There's a public acknowledgement. And then there's a sexual union, a consummation that takes place. When a church is born, and I can show you this throughout Scripture, we don't have time. It's similar. It's the same idea and concept. Vows take place in some form, whether formal or informal. And when the church partakes of the Lord's Supper together, at that moment, the union is consummated. Is everybody with me? The Lord's Supper is that important in the life of a church. It nurtures our faith. It's how we affirm one another's faith and our unity as the body of Christ. And it's where Christ is real and present with us. There are many ministries of the church and then the mission and purpose of the church we're going to talk about today. There's many answers that you could give to the mission and purpose of the church and I'm looking forward to Adam unpacking that. But at the bottom of the barrel, it's worship. Worship is the purpose of the church, not evangelism. It's worship. And from that comes evangelism. I want us to end by looking at something that we don't really have time to do. So I'm just going to give you an overview. Because I want you to know this and know how to share this. Number three. Is church membership in the Bible? Is church membership in the Bible? When you look in the Bible you always see a distinction between those who are in and those who are out. When you read Genesis to Revelation, there's the idea of inclusion and exclusion. Listen to me carefully. I would say that the entire Bible hangs on the idea of some are in and some are out. Let me share with you. There was an inside of the garden and there was an outside. There was an inside of the ark and those who were excluded outside of the ark. There was an inside of the nation of Israel that was symbolized by ceremonies and laws and so forth and those who were outside the covenant community. And when you get to what all of that foreshadows in the New Testament is that the church by very definition in nature distinguishes between those who are inside and those who are outside. I want to let that soak in because I would say that in 13 years of ministry, I've personally taken heat for nothing more than that. Why do you distinguish so much? Why can only members partake of the Lord's Supper? If the last thing that we didn't get through get me fired, I thought that was going to. I'm being serious. There's a reason why only members of any local church can partake of the Lord's Supper. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper... Hear me clearly. That is for members of our church or any other like-minded church. And I don't know why people continue to think, are you saying that you have to be a member of Reformation? Is that what I said? 
members of our church or any church that shares the same heart and preaches the same gospel as we do. Because it makes a distinction between those who are inside and outside. Why do we do that? Because the entire Bible hangs on that. Are you with me? Let me end and show you, and I'll just hit them very quickly because we're almost out of time. New Testament. New Testament. The question was never, why should we make a membership official? Why should we sign a paper? Can we just come and go as we please? There was not a category for that thinking because their lives were so interwoven within one another. Let me give you six quick assertions. Six quick arguments. Number one, the concept of the church implies membership. The concept of the church implies membership. The whole church comes together throughout the book of Acts. When believers enter a new city, oftentimes in the book of Acts, a letter of recommendation attends that believer to that church. So when other believers from other churches come to our church, we're going to call their previous church and say, were there any unreconciled issues? Do we need to send them back or are we free to accept them? Does that make sense? Because we see that in the book of Acts. There's order and organization in the New Testament church. Number two, recognizable distinction between church and world commands or compels membership. Throughout Acts 8, 11, 14, 15, they're gathering together. They're having meetings to discuss concerns. They're reorienting their entire lives together. Romans 16, there's an awareness of who's a believer and who's not in their communities. 1 Corinthians 5, you don't have the authority to profess yourself to be a Christian. Did you hear me? That's the authority of the local church to affirm your faith. I don't have that authority. God gives the keys to the gathering, the assembly of the local church. Number three, early directories point to membership. Did you know that God has a membership directory? The Lamb's Book of Life. Throughout the book of Acts, we see a clearly known, recognized, distinct group. Let me give you two examples. In 1 Timothy 5, there is a a record, a list of widows in the church. If there were a list of widows in the church, argument from silence, is it possible that there were a record of all the Christians in that church? It's possible. We see it in else places throughout the Bible. We see what looks to be uh, some sort of directory in some form or another. We see in Acts 6 that there's a recognized whole gathering of believers who are choosing their own leaders. Who is that whole gathering? It's distinguished, uh, distinctive believers who gather together. So the question is, are you saying that the early church in Scripture actually had written directories for church members? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. But I would say that if they didn't, the accountability was ten times stronger than just putting names on a piece of paper. Here's the one that sold me. Teaching on leadership indicates membership. I'm just going to be transparent with you. When we began to realize this several years ago, as our, our church just, those of you who are here realize it exploded faster than what we knew was going on. 
And I'm not trying to relinquish any responsibility. But it just happened fast, did it not? There, I mean, we, we, bl- we blinked and in six months we go from 100 to 350. And here's when God really began to deal with me about this. I wake up in a cold sweat one Monday morning. And I read Hebrews where it says that we will give an account before our Maker of the people that God has entrusted to our care. And I began to think, who is entrusted to our care? And Adam began to think, we're running ragged. Uh, We're responsible not only to visit Tyler, but now we have to go visit uh, uh, Nick and all of his friends. So now we're responsible not for 350 people, but 350 people and all of their families. And not only 350 people and all their families, everybody that possibly visited at some point, now there's an expectation that we're responsible in some sense to reach out to them. Who are we responsible for? We're responsible for the people who covenant together to submit to their elders and to submit to the body of Christ. Who do you submit to? The Bible says to submit to your leaders. Are you supposed to submit to every leader in the world? No. You submit to the leaders who you've entrusted yourself to. And then just very quickly, church membership or church discipline involves membership. If we're called to put certain people out, it would only make sense that they were already in. 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 2. There's punishment by the majority of the church. It clearly revolves around a circle that's been drawn around certain people. So what we see in the Bible is that there are no spiritually homeless Christians. What we see throughout Genesis to Revelation is that there is not a single category for a spiritual hitchhiker. Nowhere. The Ethiopian eunuch is an extraordinary exception because he was the one that was the first one saved in the area. Normally, to be saved as a Christian means that you commit your life to other Christians. And what it pictures in the Scriptures, and I'll end with this, and this is very sobering. I'm convinced, and I'll show you, the picture in Scripture is to be outside the acknowledged people of God in a local church is a picture of being outside of Jesus Christ. Are there people who are not members of churches who are saved? Are there people who are not members of churches who are saved? Yes. It's the exception, not the rule. The rule in Scripture is that to be a Christian is to be a church member. Regardless of how that's recognized, regardless if you're signing something or having a class or what you're doing, in some means or another, to be in the church is a picture of being inside of Christ. And the purpose of being inside the Christ, inside Christ and inside the church, is to share and spread the glory of Christ to all of those who are outside of it. Because the goal and the aim and the arrow is that every tongue, every nation, every language, every tribe will one day be involved in this in the heavenly assembly. And until that happens, we still have work to do. As long as there's a single lost person in Elmore County, we have work to do. To shine the glory of Christ so that this world looks at us 
and says, I can see something of the love of Christ by the way those people live together. That's what we're doing together. Father, we thank You. And we pray that we would be encouraged today and that what we do today and what many other healthy local churches, Morning View, Grace Heritage, Strong Tower, multitudes of churches is more important than anything else that will ever happen on earth. And I pray that You would help us to be encouraged in that and faithful in that and take great comfort in who we are in You as a body of believers. Help us to encourage one another, but help us to not get comfortable, but help us to rightly portray who Jesus is to a lost and dying world. And help us to live and long to that end and not give up until we see it. And help us to trust You with the results. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.